is uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, I've got uh, my cousins, uh, my sister-in-law is here because they're living in Charlotte as well, so it's great to see them and um, their friends. So, And I've been, we went with lunch today, so it's really exciting. And I'm just so thrilled that you have been going through the Old Testament. It gives great joy to my heart because I think uh, we need a lot more Old Testament in the church. Contrary to some who think we should unhitch it, I think we need to keep it hitched to um, the Christian church because we need the Old Testament in order to understand who Jesus is. Uh, and I like to use the illustration of, uh, if you think about like when you watch a movie, um, a number of years ago, I watched a Dickens movie, one of those BBC that have like, I don't know, like they're like 10 hours long. And I was watching, we watched them over um, Christmas time when it's snowing and it's kind of stay, you know, inside. And I was watching it with Matt and after about half an hour, I stopped and I said, oh, Matt, I, I'm not sure I'm sort of getting the movie because he loves that, not. <laughs> to... So he's like, well, wait, it's Dickens. And I said, well, could you have another half hour? And I'm like, oh, Matt, I'm, I'm still not getting the movie. And he's like, well, I'm not sure I am. Wait another half an hour. And so we know the half an hour. The DVD popped out. This was pre-streaming days, DVD popped out, DVD 4, and it said put in disc 5. We had been watching disc 4 without having seen discs 1 to 3. <laughs> and let me tell you what, it made a whole lot more sense once we watched the other ones first. Now, I want you to think of the Old Testament, maybe 20 DVDs and one DVD New Testament. And what we do is we stay in the New Testament and maybe we're in a bit of a fog because it doesn't all quite make sense. So the Old Testament is absolutely central to the whole storyline. And I'm excited that you're going to be going through the New Testament as well because you're going to find uh, David, who I work with, goes back to the Old Testament and they'll be familiar, be in familiar territory. So it really is um, lovely to be able to go through that. So here's what I thought. You don't need me to go through the storyline because you've already been through it. But I thought what I might do is just unpack a little bit some of the covenants. I think it's really helpful to think through the big picture of the Old Testament and understand the covenants. And I also want to just talk about some of the key characters. I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about Noah and the covenant, but especially Noah and then Abraham. We'll do a little bit with Mosaic Covenant. And then I want to spend some time with King David and the promises and really trying to pull some of the covenants together, how they relate to each other. So that's kind of what we're doing. And let me just make sure we got this going. So I'm not going to look too much, spend too much time on the opening, but I just want to mention from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, of course, the whole Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It starts, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word used for God there is Elohim. It's the regular, ordinary term for God in the ancient world. But I want you to notice in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created on the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Notice that. Why is that important for us? This is Genesis chapter 2. And it is immediately introducing the God who is the creator is the Lord God. Who is the Lord God? He is the covenant God. And most especially, 
Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. In other words, early on in the Genesis narrative, we are being introduced to the fact that the covenant God, the Lord God, is actually the creator God of Genesis chapter 1. So not only are we introduced to the Lord God, but as you know by going through the story of the Old Testament, that the character of God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And why is that important way back in Genesis 2? Because Genesis 3 comes next. And if the Lord God wasn't gracious and compassionate, it would have been the end of the story. But what the story shows us as we go through it is that God creates human beings to be in relationship. He creates them as his, in his image. This language of image is all about relationship. And let me unpack this just for a moment and then we're going to talk about Noah. So in the ancient world, if you look at uh, theologians, they'll try and talk about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? The best way to understand this is to think of ancient Near Eastern image-making ceremonies. Uh, several books. I'm, gonna, I'm standing further back here. I'm going to move it back just so that I can see you all. Let me just do that. How's that? So image-making ceremony. What does this mean? So in the ancient world, human beings would make an image and the Hebrew word here is tselem, image. They would make an image. It could be in the, in the, looks like an animal, like in the golden calf, but it is also in a human form. I didn't bring her with me, but I have an Asherah deity replica. She's a little bit voluptuous. My boys are always like, Mum. Like, you can imagine when you go through the security too, I always... I always put her on the top because they always like, what is this? So I didn't do it this time, but I did. I was in New York City a couple of weeks ago and she came with me. And I'm like, oh, I teach the Old Testament. She's a replica. And they're like, like get rid of it. Go. Okay, you're fine. <laughs> so, but the point is they're little humans. And so in the ancient world, people would make an image and then they would bow down to it and worship it. The term used for image is the same in Genesis, except what God does with human beings is the original and the idols are the counterfeit. What the idols is, it is a distortion of the divine human relationship. But when God creates image, images, unlike the idols, which have eyes that cannot see, that have ears that cannot hear, that has a mouth that cannot speak. God creates living images for relationship with him because he is the living God. So the language of image is setting us up for relationship with God. Not only that, but the image language also means that human beings are sons and daughters of God. But the fall changes everything because what we find is that they rebel against God and this then, something's wrong there, but they rebel against God and this is where covenants begin. Some people will argue that Genesis 
chapters two and three that there's a covenant there and others will argue that there isn't a covenant. I don't think there is, but there are some good scholars who argue that there is. But what happens is human beings rebel against God and this then is going to be the context for the covenants. Why covenants? God is going to be using an ancient form to enter into relationships with individuals, with people like Noah, with people like Abraham, with Israel, with David and with us, New Covenant. So I'm just going to kind of spend a few minutes looking at those and I want to look at the covenant partners as well. So Noah we're going to look at. We're going to look at Abraham for a few minutes, Israel, Mosaic Covenant, David, and then the New Covenant. And I want us just like when I was watching that Dickens show, I couldn't understand the New Covenant without understanding the Old Covenant. We're going to spend a few minutes understanding what the old one was like to know what we have under the New Covenant. So that's where we're headed. So what we find in Genesis chapter 6 is that not only is there the fall and sin has entered and human beings have rebelled, we have the murder with Cain uh, and in chapter 4 we have the boasting of Lamech and so we are seeing the human story and the brokenness of humanity. Then we come to chapter 6 and we read the statement in chapter 6 verse 5 that says that Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of his heart was only evil all the day long. It is the most severe statement of human depravity. So it looks like the creation story is going to be undone. God looks at it. He wants to wipe out human beings. He's grieved in his heart. And this is where the divine human relationship has led us to in chapter 6. And this is also where covenants are going to enter into the story. Because God looks at the wickedness of humanity and he wants to destroy everyone and he sees that the wickedness of great, but... Noah was good. Noah's Ark. I, I just brought three books with me. I have a whole collection at home, uh, but I like looking at... Let me just grab the other one. I like looking at um, kids' books because they tell us a lot of theology. Uh, so let me just give you. Okay, here are the bad people, Biff, Boff, Baff. Here is Noah. He is good and kind. All right. Rain, rain, rain. As time went by, people in the world did bad things, just as Adam and Eve. Noah was the only good man left on earth. Another one, the Beginner's Bible. Many years passed after Adam and Eve left the garden. People began to forget about God. They began to do bad things. There was only one good man. His name was Noah. And my last one. There came a time when people forgot about God. There was only one good man, Noah. God said, you are good, Noah. Thank you, God, said Noah. <laughs> If you're teaching Bible stories, you may as well teach manners right at the same time. 
I want you to know that the creation story doesn't continue through one good man. What does the scripture say? Everyone was wicked, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Everyone, inclination was evil. That's not saying everyone was a murderer. Everyone's got their back to God. They're rebellious. They're devising of their thoughts and not according to God's ways. But Noah found favour. What I want us to be reminded of as we begin is to recognise that the redemptive story continues because of the grace and favour of God. The contrast in the narrative is not everyone else is wicked, but Noah was a good man. The contrast is not even, but Noah was a righteous man. The contrast is, but Noah found favour. What does that term favour mean? If you look at favour, it can mean a, a polite address and, oh, if I, you know, just a nice etiquette way of being polite. Oh, if, if I found favour in your eyes, may I do this? And, you know, but it is also used of God's unmerited favour in the story of the golden calf story, when the Israelites have made a golden calf and and Moses says, if I and the people have found favour in your eyes. They've just built the golden calf. They do not deserve the favour. But God shows it anyway because it's his character. That's why we have in Genesis 6, 8, it says that Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord because this is the covenant Lord who is gracious and compassionate. So here's what I think is going on in the flood story is that I do think Noah is righteous, but I do not think Noah is righteous when God calls him. Let me just repeat that. I do think Noah is righteous. I do not think he is righteous when God calls him. So here's what's going on. There are two places in the flood story, chapter 6, verse 9 and 7, verse 1. And here's what I think is happening. Noah is among sinful humanity. Genesis 8, 21 says that God will not send another flood, even though the wickedness of humanity hasn't changed, basically. The flood doesn't clean up the human heart. It's going to take more than water. The sin of humanity continues after the flood. And who is there? Noah and his family. What else happens with Noah after the flood is the story where he gets drunk. Right after the blessing. Why? Not only does he get drunk, but the language used to describe that story in chapter 9 is full of vocabulary from Genesis chapter 3. So in the midst of this story, we have the statement that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time in chapter 6 verse 9 and 7 verse 1. Why is this important? Here's what I think is going on. I think Noah's a sinner like everybody else. He finds favour in God's eyes. Well, why does he find favour? If we start asking the question, why does he find favour? It is no longer favour. Because favour rests with God, not in human merit. And that's why God's going to say later, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I get to decide. 
period. So I think he's shown favour and God tells him about the flood ahead of time. And then we find the mystery is that by faith, Noah obeys God. Chapter 6, verse 22, it says, Noah did everything God commanded him. And then immediately after that, it says in chapter 7, verse 1, God says, now I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So I think that that is his first declaration of being righteous. And I think chapter 6, verse 9 is a summary of his life. It's anticipating his life. So why is this important? As we begin to think about covenants and covenant partners, God is not choosing good people to be covenant partner with, to enter into a covenant. He's choosing sinners by grace. And so it is an underscoring for us. It's a reminder that the people who are in the ark are not good people. There's only one good person. His name's Jesus. So sinners are in the ark saved by faith, Hebrews 11. Why is this important for us when we start to think about the redemptive story? Sometimes people outside the church think that they're not good enough to go to church because all the good people are in the church and all the bad people are outside. My husband's uh, sister, Jen, uh, who became a Christian a number of years ago, we asked her one time, what, what happened for you? She said, I knew I wasn't good enough for God. And so I stopped trying. I didn't even want to be part of it. And then I found out about grace that I didn't have to be good enough. So we need to remember as we start the redemptive story that the sinners are in the boat. They're saved by grace and they're going to obey out of God's goodness. So God then enters into a covenant and the covenant that he makes with Noah is and with all humanity. Whoops, I've got to go that way. Sorry, I'm just getting used to this. The covenant that he makes is what we call a one-sided covenant. God is making promises. He's promising he's not going to send another flood, even though sin continues and the sin would be worthy of another flood because of his grace and his mercy. So that sets the scene for what follows. And it's this reminder that the narrative starts off with God's grace. All right, next one. Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is the story of Abraham. And I want to highlight a couple of things here. God is going to make promises to Abraham that you have studied. And he makes a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15. So promises God makes with Abraham. 12, 1 to 3, this is the key turning point in the story. I'm going to talk about his background in a moment. So God is going to make promises to him. You've been looking at them. You have them on your timeline. These promises that are foundational for the storyline of the whole Old Testament. And then we have the covenant that he makes in chapter 15, this um, unconditional covenant. And then we have circumcision. And then that line is going to continue and lead to a, um, Israel. I want to talk about the covenant partner for a moment. And I'm just going to highlight, see how it says at the timeline, God calls Abraham out of Ur, he's elderly and his wife is barren. So I just want to kind of land on this for a couple of minutes for us to reflect on it. So this, you can see it on the map. You have the city of Ur. This is where Abraham grew up. And Abraham grew up in a city that was a very religious city. 
they estimate uh, by the second millennium over 3,000 Mesopotamian gods. Over th- we think we've got pluralism. Over 3,000 gods. They estimate round about 200 worshipped in any one city. Not only do they worship many gods, but Ur was especially a religious place because it had the ziggurat. You may have seen excavations, this stair. They've done excavations at Ur and so it was a big deal. This had the really nice big ziggurat dedicated to the moon god Sin, S-I-N. When my husband and I were living in Salem for 15 years, um, I like to think of Ur a bit like Salem. We had uh, about 3,000 witches living in the city. Uh, We had tarot cards. We had anything you could imagine was in Salem. Where we lived, um, there was a satanic temple about five minutes walk from the house. When we were living in Salem, sometimes Christians would say to us and friends, I don't really like going into Salem. It's kind of creepy. Right? I want you to think of, I want you to think of Ur like Salem. Religious activity. If there's one place in America that's, you know, Halloween and all that, that's it. Ur was like that. They had priests, they had priestesses, they had cult prostitutes, they had omens, they had everything. And this is where Abraham grew up and Sarah grew up. Not only did they grow up there, but they were 75 years old in that place. Think about how much that culture had impressed itself upon them. Uh, I've been here for, uh, I came from Australia about 30 years ago, actually, this August, I have things in my Australian culture that do not leave me. After 30 years, one of them is uh, in Australia when you're invited and you have food, someone's going to say, if you have a meal at someone's place and they're going to, you finish your meal and they're like, oh, can I get you some more? You are going to say, oh, no, thank you. That was lovely. Thanks very much. They're going to come back a second time and they're going to say, you sure I can't get you something else? Like, no, no, that was lovely. Thank you very much. They are going to come back the third time and they are going to say, are you sure I can't get you? And that's, you, that's it. Oh, yes, look, thank you. That'd be lovely. So 30 years' time, what do I do for my husband who's from New Jersey? Matt, can I get you a cup of coffee? No, I'm fine, thanks. What do I do? Are you sure I can't get you another cup? No, I'm fine. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Oh, Matt, can I, can I get you? Are you sure I'm going to put coffee on? He's like, like, what didn't you get the first time, right? <laughs> this, is, this is all the, over this time. The other thing that happens in Australian culture is when you go and visit someone and when you say goodbye, especially if you've come from a distance, if you say goodbye to them, you don't close the door. You go outside. And we said this when our boys were visiting Australia a few years ago. I said, watch what happens with all the cousins. They all go outside. We, all of them, they're out there. Two, we're like, right, bye, you know, around. Now, here in Boston, it's freezing cold. Someone walks out the door. What, do, what would they do? Close the door. So I do that, but I still feel inside that it's wrong. Right? You know you've got your certain things. You Now think about Abraham, 75 years 
in Ur with a place with many gods, how does he ever become a Yahweh worshipper? Guess how he does? God turns up in Ur. Acts chapter 7 says the God of all glory showed up in Ur. Not only did the God of all glory show up in Ur, but Joshua 24 verse 2 says that they were idol worshippers. Abraham and his family were idol worshippers. Kids' Bible storybook. Abraham was a very good man. God was pleased with him. Beginner's Bible. There once was a good man named Abraham. God had a special plan for him. I want to remind us as we think of the story, that's why there's a picture of a gift next to Abraham. A sign of God's grace because Abraham was an idol worshipper. The kids' book should say there once was an idol worshipper or sinner or however you want to say it. They should be saying the same thing about Noah. There once was a sinner named Noah. And you know what? When he was young, he used to hit his brother as well. (laughs) Right? That's our story. But what do we do? We make them out into being these good people when they are not. They are going, we're going to talk in a moment about God's role, but God takes the initiative with Abraham and unlike people who would say we don't like turning up in Salem, God turns up there because he loves these kind of places because he's God and he can do something about it. Sometimes you're going to hear people today talk about the decline of our culture and we can lament about it and feel like it's, we're going in a dark place. And I want to remind us as we think about God's initiative in covenants is that God loves dark places because he's light. And we need a robust theology of Genesis chapter 1 when God said in the beginning darkness was hovering over the deep and God said, let there be light. Look at the, uh, the web telescope pictures. Have you seen some of those? They call them the dance of the stars. I think about that and said, what did it look like when you said, let there be light? That's his spectacular handiwork. And so we think that maybe our circumstances are a bit too dark for God. And I want to remind us that God is the one through covenants who initiates a relationship by his grace and his word is effective, so it actually changes things. So God calls Abraham out of her. He turns up in dark places because he actually is the God of Genesis chapter 1 and we need a robust theology today to have hope when we look around us in our own context. God turns up while we were yet sinners. And that's why the children's book bothers me, bother me so much. Because they're wrong. They're really wrong. 
because God is in the business of entering into relationship with sinners and prodigals and people who turn their back on him and he keeps pursuing his people over and over again and this is the redemptive story of the Old Testament. And so it reminds us then when we think about our own relationships and when we think about those who are, it seems like it is dark that we just have to be prayerful and ask God to shine his light in there. And I love thinking about this entrance, this beginning of the redemptive story with Abraham because here he is in Ur, doesn't know who the Lord is and God shows up. And I think about places in the world today like Iran where Christian missionaries cannot witness dark, dark places. And God says, it's okay, I'll go. And Jesus is showing up in people's dreams. We had a couple in our home, they were Gordon Conwell students from Nigeria. He was had his doctorate in Islamic studies, was very high up. His family had come from the northern Nigeria and he was adamant against Christians. And he started having dreams and in his dreams he was told, saw someone telling him to read the book of John and after several dreams he ended up going to a bookshop and said, is there a book of John? And they, someone said, well, there's a book of John in the Bible. So he started reading it and he encountered Jesus. Becomes a Christian, gets rejected from his family, gets put in prison, is, put, is tortured, ends up getting out, goes off to Greece. Long story, but it turns up in Gordon Conwell as a student he went to our church, he was in our home, he shared stories, he and his wife. And you know where they are now? Back in Nigeria. And just amazing ministry that he's having. This is the missionary God who enters into relationships. He's taking the initiative and that's what's lovely to hear. Uh, so I also want you to notice as we start to think about the context for the, the covenant relationship is, let <clears throat> uh, me just, oops, I think I'm going, I need to go back. Let me, is that going back? Let me just see. Here we go. Genesis 11 verse 30. So before God even makes these promises, we have this statement at the beginning and you have it on your timeline. It's one of the little bullet points. Uh, notice here, God calls Abraham out of her. Abraham is elderly and his wife is barren. You know, the book of Genesis is all about genealogies. It's all about family history. It's called this Toledoth structure. My own doctoral work was on be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth, the creation mandate. So Genesis is all about family history. The verb, you remember all the begats, the begats, the begats. So God now is calling Abraham, who's going to be his, he's going to enter into a covenant with him that sets the stage for this redemptive story. And we find out in chapter 11, when Sarah is first introduced, it says that she was 
barren, she had no child. Well, that's a bit of a downer at the beginning of the story. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would like to be introduced that way right at the start. But it reminds us that God is using unlikely people and unlikely circumstances. Because it is not only that Sarah is barren, but in chapter 18, verse 11, it says she is past the way of a woman. Now, if this was a woman's retreat, I may go into more detail. As my boys would be say, like, time out, oversharing, oversharing. So I won't, but she can't physically have kids. Too late. God says, perfect. I've got a promise that you're going to have so many kids. Perfect. Because, oh, I'm going to do it, not you. That's how the redemptive plan works, that God is the one who's going to bring this about. And in fact, of course, it's going to come about through the word of God. So uh, another reminder of the grace of God and the um, unlikely circumstances. And what you find in these, both with Noah but with Abraham, is, and in the stories of Abraham, it's kind of pretty messy, the whole stories. And with the patriarchs in general, it's pretty messy. So you've got, I mean, that's not a nice way to start barrenness in the ancient world. Tim Keller talks about the fact early in his uh, Christian life when he was reading Genesis, it always troubled him, all those kind of messy stories. And he really talks about the fact in one of his sermons that it was a bit of a game changer for him when he realised, oh, these are not heroes of the faith as in good people, they're sinners saved by grace. And so these stories, the messiness of the stories is actually part of what God's trying to show us in how he's going to fulfill this redemptive story. So uh, God is going to give them children as part of his promises, uh, but it is going to be that he is the one who's going to bring it to pass so that they're always going to remember that this is about him. So you've been looking at the promises. You've already gone through all of these. We have the promise of many descendants, which is going to be fulfilled through Abraham. And you've seen the whole story, not only through Israel, but through the whole New Testament, that we're now children of Abraham. And we have the promised land. We have God's presence. And we have that through Abraham and his descendants, all the nations are going to be blessed. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. He's going to be the father of many nations and kings will come forth from him. So these promises now are part of Genesis 12 and 17. But then you come to the covenant that God makes in chapter 15, which is preceded by Abraham believing in God. And I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes on chapter 15, verse 6, and then we'll talk about the covenant and then we're going to move along. Okay, so... Genesis 15, 6, you've looked at it in your Bible study. The importance of this verse, remember, is that Abraham is not declared righteous 
his faith is counted as righteousness. Anyone explain that? Can anyone explain that? What does that mean? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Anyone? That's a hard one. Yep. There's a song, yep. a lyric that says, not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Great. That'll preach. <laughs> yep. So yet not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Yes. Faith without works. He hasn't done anything. He's believing in what God can do. And God says, I love that. You're believing in me. I love that. And God is counting his faith as if it was an act of righteousness. That ring a bell? I know you probably went through that. It's, it's one of these, we have a section in the study guide. It's a really important section because this is our, how we are saved by faith, declared righteous. But the other thing I just want to, while we've been talking about Abraham as his covenant partner, I also want to mention something here that is really important. <clears throat> so Abraham at this point is believing that God is going to give him children. He has resurrection faith because he looks at the deadness of Sarah's womb and he looks at the deadness of his own body, but he believes God is going to give life out of that which is dead, Romans chapter 4. Paul's going to say in Romans 4, not only is he believing in God, but then he goes on to say, what then shall we say that Abraham, according to the faith, has found? If Abraham is working, he's got something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham is believing in God without working. And Paul in Romans 4 describes him as ungodly at that moment of Genesis 15:6. Right? You have to stay with me just for a minute here. The Greek word ungodly, asabes, is the Greek translation of wickedness in the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked and the righteous. What it means is in Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham believes in God, at that moment he is wicked, ungodly. In other words, the children's book should say there once was an ungodly man named Abraham and an idol worshipper. And God had a special plan for him. There once was an ungodly man named Abraham and God had a special plan for him. Now that gives us hope for our own lives and it gives us hope when we look at family members or we look at friends who are struggling, who are away from God, we can have faith to trust and to pray for people because of the God who works in lives like Abraham. All right, then we have the covenant that comes next. And this is why you also have, of course, the gift of, you've got the picture of grace that comes. And then I just want to spend a couple of minutes, just quickly, I know you've been looking at some of these covenants through your course. 
the covenant God makes with Abraham introduces an important concept for us. So Abraham says, well, how do I know you? I'm going to get these promises. And God says to him, get some animals. Now for us, it's like, what do you mean? What are you getting the animals? We know that you sign contracts by using a pen. When our boys were younger and we'd offer to pay them certain money for doing chores, every so often they'd get a piece of paper out and they'd write it out and they'd like, sign it, Mum. <laughs> you go and have a will done and they'll say, make sure you bring a, is it a blue pen or a black, whatever it is, it's the blue pen or something. And people know it's whatever it is, one of those, right? Make sure you bring a blue pen with you. Now, I don't need to say, well, why do I bring a pen? Like, because I'm signing a document, a legal document. What God says to Abraham, he's about to enter into a legal document with him. It's like, go get the pen, Abraham. But instead he says, go get the animals. And Abraham doesn't say, what for? Why? No, no. Okay. Because in the ancient world, you cut a covenant by cutting animals and you use blood to inaugurate the covenant. So this is this legal arrangement and God is passing between the pieces and Abraham is in his vision kind of sleeping, passive, and God is entering into a relationship with him. So God is taking the initiative. It's an unconditional covenant. And this covenant undergirds the whole Old Testament. Because what you find in the story is when God's people mess up, golden calf story, when they've built the golden calf, God wants to destroy them. What does he say? Moses says, Remember the covenant you made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The covenant is given unconditionally and God's promises will stand regardless of Abraham's side because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. In the Bible, we love covenants that are one-sided that God is the one making them. All right, so let's do two-minute review roundtables. Covenant with, we're not going to spend too much with Moses. I want to move on to David and New Covenant. Okay, so a couple of minutes round the tables. Noah, character of Noah, who's the covenant partner, character of Abraham. See if you can just summarise what we've been talking about, about those two figures, and then we're going to talk about um, Mosaic Covenant in a moment. All right. The importance of God's grace. Okay, so here's, here's what I want to do. I'm just going to give a five-minute summary of Mosaic Covenant. Just to, This is a refresher course, all right? I know you've been through this, but this is a refresher. Okay, Mosaic Covenant. Because we have to know the Mosaic Covenant to understand the New Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant is... Entered into here, and this covenant continues all the way through. It's operative all the way through, all the way through. I don't have my New Testament banner, but if I had it, you're going to see expectations, Messiah. It would last all the way through to the cross. Okay, so this is the Mosaic covenant. It continues all the way through. There are different renewals. They break it and there's renewals, but it continues all the way through. So Mosaic Covenant is this two-sided covenant between God and Israel. Moses is the mediator. But 
unlike the Abrahamic covenant and unlike the Davidic covenant and unlike the new covenant, this is a covenant that is conditional. God enters into a covenant and this one in particular is very well known in ancient Near Eastern treaty formulas. Uh, There are are hundreds of ancient treaties and scholars have looked at this one in particular and compared it to ancient treaties that have like preamble and historical prologue and stipulations and witnesses. So this, but what's important for you to understand as you put the story together and even as you prepare to do the New Testament is that it is a conditional covenant. What do we mean by that? It has promises with it blessings and curses. So it has promises and it starts off by saying, if you obey my commandments and do this, then there's a whole series of blessings that are going to come on upon you. And you have your references here, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 to 28. And there's a whole list of curses. You know, you're going to become... Boils are going to come upon you and the plagues and the locusts and you're going to be defeated by your enemy, even cannibalism. I mean, it just goes on and on. Ancient Near Eastern curses have this. You break the covenant, may you become like food inside the intestines of a pig. (laughs) Right? So, So there's all these curses and this is exactly what this has as well. It has both blessings and curses. The story of God's people is that they don't do very well with obedience. Right? Even before they are out of Sinai. When Moses is, remember the story, getting the commandments? What are the Israelites? Remember the story? What are they doing? Golden calf. I mean, he's up there getting the law for goodness sake. And they're like, well, we don't know what's happened to Moses. And who do they go to? Aaron. Aaron. He's the high priest. People are sometimes saying, well, why, why, didn't, why did God choose him? I'm like, like who else? <laughs> so Hebrews says the priest is beset with weakness too. Right? He has to, that's why he has to offer. Before he can offer sins for you, he's got to offer them for himself first. And Aaron's a prime example of that. So God wants to destroy them, but by his grace, because Moses intercedes, if I have found mercy in your eyes. So he goes with them. But the point is the golden calf story keeps repeating itself. 200 years. Remember you looked at the northern kingdom? If you went through that, I know we went through it with our women's Bible, so we're like, I'm ready to get out of the northern kingdom. (laughs) It's just like murder, assassination. 200 years they worship the idols. They have broken the covenant. They have been unfaithful. So this covenant then, and then it keeps on going on and on. You had some good kings, some bad kings, good kings, bad kings, bad, bad, good, good, bad, bad. (laughs) And then in 586, remember Jeremiah says the curses of the covenant are coming upon you because you've broken the covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. And then they go into exile for 70 years and they renew the covenant. Then they come back and there's some good starts with Ezra and there's renewal, but 
How does the book, Old Testament, finish? Malachi. Oh, there's sin. There's a problem of sin. There's priests that are sinning. And if you don't repent, I'm going to come and send another curse on you. Like, oh my gosh, what's, what's the solution to this? Fast forward, the Apostle Paul says the solution is an exchange curse. He's going to quote in Galatians chapter 3 that Jesus becomes a curse in order to fulfill the law that we have failed to keep. So the whole cross is the background, really is the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant curses. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It is the fulfillment of that. I also just want you to be aware of, as we just think of this covenant, is that the covenant is inaugurated again through, um, through blood. Exodus 24, I've just given you Jeremiah 11. Exodus 24, how does this covenant get inaugurated? Moses sprinkles blood on the people and they cut a covenant. All right. So Exodus 24, they sprinkles the blood, they cut a covenant. So let me just review where we are. We had the covenant with Noah. Abraham covenant, they cut a covenant. It was the animals between the pieces. Mosaic covenant, another covenant that's going to last all the way through. And it is inaugurated with blood. All right. This is the covenant that is going to be broken over and over again until finally 586, the curses come upon God's people. And it's going to take us all the way through to the cross. All right, two-minute summary of Mosaic Covenant in tables, and then we're going to talk about David. All right, I want to spend a few minutes... So we've just really quickly, Mosaic, but I do want to spend a few more minutes with the um, Davidic covenant and the promises. And then I do want to really finish with some, the new covenant and why that's how that brings together uh, these promises. So if you, can, uh, if you can turn to 2 Samuel 7. As you're doing that, let me just t- mention a few things about the call of David. So remember that way back in Genesis, there was the promise that kingship would be through the line of David, through, sorry, Judah, the line of Judah. And just you have on your PowerPoint, God's chosen king from the line of Judah, and you have anointed by Samuel. I just want to mention before I look at the covenant, we'll look at 2 Samuel 7. I want you to notice 1 Samuel 16 is the call of David, remember that uh, we have Samuel who goes to Jesse's house. And this story reminds us of God turning the cultural categories on its head by choosing not the firstborn, not the secondborn, not the thirdborn, not the fourthborn, not the fifthborn. David is the youngest. And when Samuel goes there. He thinks it's the firstborn, but it's not. And God has to show him 
and David doesn't even get invited to the meal. But we need to see and have eyes to see what God is doing in someone's life and this is one of those places where God is at work in his life and God has been at work in David's life and he is going to be anointed as king. He is one of our unlikely leaders and unlikely circumstances and David will never forget it. If you read the end of his life, he will talk about who am I and who is my family that you have brought me this far, thus far. So we have the, he's going to be anointed. The term used there to anoint is where we get our term Mashiach. And, but I do also want you to notice as we think about the life of David and the covenant God makes with him, what happens next? So 1 Samuel 16, call of David, anointing to be king. 1 Samuel 17 is the Goliath story. And he becomes king in 2 Samuel 5. What happens in between? So I want you to anointing to be king defeats Goliath, but he doesn't become king here. He's king all the way over here. If I was God, I would say anointing to be king becomes king. Same son of the seminary students. Go to seminary, graduate, get a job. God's plan is anointing. Defeat Goliath, uh, have to flee for your life, hide about in caves, not sure where you're going to get your next food, whether you're going to be alive or dead. And by the way, while you're going through all that, you've got to learn to trust in me. The call of David, all the stuff that happens in between is the call. We think the call is 1 Samuel 16 and kingship. But I just want to remind us that all the stuff in between is as much of the call. And here's the amazing thing later when David's going to say, you have been with me wherever I have been. David has known God's presence in all this time as much as when he's become king. This is the training ground for it. Um, I didn't bring it today, but one of the books I have brought at different times, which I don't care for, is Joel Osteen, 31 Declarations. Um, I hope I'm not offending people here. One of the declarations is, I declare an anointing of ease on my life. I want to think like a king, act like a king. I'm like, okay, you better look at King David uh, because he didn't have a life of ease and I think he's the closest we get to kingship that's anticipating the Messiah. And he is a suffering king and he is a musician who is singing his heart out to God and learning to trust in him and he blesses us with a whole lot of songs. Oh, Lord, you have been my help and my shield. You know, all the waves are coming over, but I cried out to you. Where did all those come from all those years in between? And then we come, he's been now become king, 2 Samuel 5, and now we come in 2 Samuel 7 where 
He wants to build a temple for God and kings in the ancient world built temples for gods. That's what you do. And it's the highest task you can do. And God says to him, no. God's tasks will not be defined by cultural norms. But God's no, God's no is a yes to something else. David thought that he would build the temple and he has humility to accept God's no. But here's the thing. God was doing something else. He wasn't to build the temple, but he was to build a worship legacy because David is the one that institutes Levites and worship leaders and his legacy outlasts the temple because worship continues into all eternity and that's what David's going to do. He's going to appoint Levites, he's going to appoint musicians and wonderful. But in this story now, God makes a covenant with David and I'm just going to highlight a few things here uh, with the covenant. When you think of the covenant, this is a quick summary that's on the timeline. Uh, You have everlasting throne Everlasting kingdom, son of God relationship, son will build the temple, covenant cannot be broken, and then God's grace. And of course, we see God's grace here as well. And I just want to highlight a couple of things here. Here we go. Okay, so the covenant that God makes with David, there are two parts to this covenant. The first part concerns promises that God makes concerning David. I'm going to make, I've been with you. I'm going to make your name great. Uh, I'm going to appoint a place for Israel. So he makes promises to David, but he also makes promises concerning his descendant or his seed. And whoop. all right, you, so this is the, I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes here. What is this? Why is this important for us? God promises unconditionally to David. He basically says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I am going to raise up your seed after you and I will establish his everlasting throne and his everlasting kingdom. We also find out from Chronicles that the Davidic king is going to rule over the kingdom of God. David clues in about this is big. You've told me things that are going to happen in the future. So you know you've gone through the story of kingship. Do you remember what happens to the last king? Anyone remember? Do you remember what they do beforehand? Gouge out his eyes. Kill his 70 sons. Remember that? So what happens in this story is that the promise is given conditionally to Solomon. If you obey me and if you keep my commandments, then I'll give you the blessings that I promised to David. And so you find out as you go through the story, we've got Rehoboam is a bad king, Asa's pretty good, Jehoshaphat's a good king, and it kind of goes up and down. And by the time we get to 586 BC, our last king, Zedekiah, 70 sons killed, eyes gouged out. He goes into Babylon in the dark. 
Zedekiah is Jehoiachin's uncle. I want you to just see that on the timeline. See, see how the arrow goes through Jehoiachin? Jehoiachin goes off to Babylon. While he's in Babylon, he has sons, and this line is going to continue. It's going to take us all the way through the Messiah, which is where you get Matthew chapter 1. So there's all these prophetic promises to do with Jesus, the Messiah. He's born in Bethlehem. There's um, all these wonderful prophetic texts as we think about who Jesus is as the Messiah. But I also want to remind us, not only uh, do we have all these birth narratives, we have genealogies and so on. He enters into Jerusalem uh, on the donkey, according to Zechariah's prophecy. But he is also going to die a gruesome death on a cross. And you know the story with the disciples, like they're just despondent. We thought he was the hope of Israel. But three days later, God raises him from the dead. The promise God made to David, he said to him, when your days are complete... I will raise up your seed after you. The Hebrew verb there is kum, to arise. It is in the hifil causative. I will cause your seed to arise. The Greek translation is anistomi, to resurrect. God is promising David in light of the New Testament, I will resurrect your descendant. And you're going to find when you study the New Testament that the New Testament authors in Acts are all over it. They realize that Jesus' resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. This is why casket empty is the acronym for the Bible. Resurrection of Jesus. Fulfillment. Okay, last one. New covenant. So now if you can turn to, uh, let me just, before we do the new covenant, let me, um, if you can turn to uh, Jeremiah 31. Skip those, and I'm just going to. We've talked about that. I'm just going to go straight to Jeremiah 31. Okay, so we've had Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic, Davidic, New Covenant, last one, Jeremiah 31. So Jeremiah witnesses all the 586 BC destruction of Jerusalem, he sees it all. And he announces, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut, verse 31, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I want you to notice, first of all, when this promise is given, these are people who have fallen under God's judgment because of the exile. God is initiating again. And he's initiating with sinners. 
not like the covenant which I made with their forefathers on the day I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. The new covenant that we are under is not like the old covenant. Can I have an amen for that? <laughs> what is it? What's the difference here? First of all, my covenant which they broke, God is the only one making promises under the new covenant. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then in verse 34, it talks about forgiveness. So let me just give you a summary of this new covenant. And I'm just going to highlight a couple of features here. First of all, behold, the days are coming. Sometime it's here. It's sometime in the future. There are no passages in the rest of the Old Testament that indicate this covenant ever was inaugurated in the Old Testament. So the days are coming. It's after the restoration, sometime in the future. God is going to cut a covenant. It is not make, it is cut. Why is that important? There's going to be blood involved to inaugurate this covenant. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut. And it is a new covenant, chadash in Hebrew, new, something brand new. It's not a renewal of the Mosaic covenant. It's a brand new covenant. It is given unconditionally. I will cut a new covenant, not like the old one. And what do we find? God's law is within them and on their heart I will write it. So we have continuity with the law, but it's now on the human heart. And it also says, they shall will not teach again each man his neighbour, saying, Know the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So why is this so important? The first thing is, it, this is a unilateral covenant. It's something that only God is doing. He's doing it. Second thing is, it's given unconditionally. God doesn't say, like he did with Mosaic, if you do this, then I'll bless you. And this covenant offers forgiveness that is not found under the old covenant. What do we mean by that? Under the old covenant, there was this sacrificial system that would bring about forgiveness. But what about if you murder someone? There's no forgiveness that's offered under the old covenant. What about if you curse your parents? Death. No, no forgiveness offered. What about if you worship Molech? No sacrifice can pay for that. Death. And there's a whole series of sins which require the death penalty. The new covenant offers a much greater forgiveness. And you know the story that when Jesus is about to go to the cross at the Passover meal that we've celebrated this past Easter, that he says to them, behold, 
the blood of the covenant, and in Luke, the new covenant, in my blood. I want you to notice there that when the covenant was made with Abraham and when the covenant was made with Moses in Israel, whose blood was used? Animals. So now the stakes are way higher because Jesus is going to inaugurate the covenant through his own blood. Not only that, but the means of forgiveness has changed and the stakes are much higher. Because Hebrews is going to say that the blood of goats and bulls can never take away sin. You see, there were imperfect because obedience was always more important than sacrifice. Obedience is always more important than sacrifice. There are several places that mention that. And the animal cannot bring obedience. We have a golden doodle. She's about six years old. And when she was about six months old, she had um, low blood platelets and we had to bring her to the vet to get blood work done every, I don't know, two months or something. She'd go to the, go to the vet, the, the people at the front desk would see her and they'd, oh my gosh, she's adorable and she'd just like as cute as you can be and everything. And then the vet would come with the white coat in the doors. You know what she would do? You know, and she's like on the doors, you know that? I mean, she was just getting an injection. What do you think about animals going to the slaughterhouse? See, Jesus fully obeys to the point of death. He brings the obedience that we cannot bring ourselves. The writer to the Hebrews is going to say it's a better sacrifice because of that. And so Jesus not only inaugurates the covenant through his death, but his death is the means by which the promise is being fulfilled because he is the one that offers the forgiveness. Ezekiel chapter 36 adds to this by describing the role of the spirit as part of the new covenant. He announces that he is going to cleanse us and also put his spirit in us as part of the new covenant. And this is the game changer. In the Old Testament, the spirit comes upon elders and comes upon people and Levites the preposition used in Hebrew is L on, upon. If I want to put my Bible on something, I use the preposition in Hebrew, L on. 
That's not what Ezekiel uses when he talks about the coming of the Spirit. He says, God will put his spirit, preposition b and bethok, in you, in your midst. And it is God's spirit then that enables us to follow God's laws. The cleansing that we have as part of the new covenant that comes, the forgiveness that's being offered, the once-for-all forgiveness. And once you've got forgiveness and cleansing, you are then have room for the Spirit to come in you. The preposition but was used in Genesis when God breathed into Adam and he became a living image. Now we see the spirit promised coming in someone and in fact Ezekiel gets the first deposit because the same preposition is used when he sees God's glory and he falls flat down and the spirit comes in him and enables him to stand up and to follow God's laws. So the role of the spirit is central and of course you see that in chapter 37 with the vision of the dry bones as well because this is the game changer for the story of the difference with the Old Testament and the New. Because when you go through the story of the Old Testament, you see the sin over and over and over again. And you're like, when are they going to learn? But when you start to come to the New Testament and you see the work of the Spirit, not only in their lives but in our lives, then what we see is the work of the Spirit to bring about the works of the law by faith, which the law could not do. And what it does for me when I think about this story is I think about when I look at people around me who I think are struggling and people that I'm praying for, I want to remember that this is the missionary God who pursues sinners. This is the God of Abraham who changes people and causes them to be an idol worshipper to a Yahweh worshipper. And this is the God who changes the human heart. It's not going to be through good works or trying harder, but it is through the work of Christ. Uh, Let me just share an illustration of a story. You may have read it. um, Christopher Yarn, Out of a Far Country. Uh, Christopher Yarn um, grew up in a family with atheistic parents and uh, his father was a dentist and he went to dental school. Um, He was from Chicago and then went to dental school in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, And while he was in dental school, he really got mixed up with the wrong group of people and started doing a lot of partying and um, a lot of... um, 
got involved in like a whole gay lifestyle and different partners and just pretty um, tough story with what happened in his life. While this is going on, his mother becomes a Christian and she starts praying for her son. She sets up her bathroom, which no one was using, as her prayer closet. And she has all these stickers and notes of prayer, all prayers in this book. It's written by both of them, actually. And she's praying for her son. So he ends up um, getting involved with drugs, selling drugs, becomes a very successful drug dealer, travelling all over the country. Uh, long story cut short, ends up getting busted, goes to a high-security prison in Atlanta. Meanwhile, not only has the mum become a Christian, but the dad has become a Christian as well, and they're praying. And while it, when he's in prison, he talks about the day that it was one of the lowest points in his life when he's in solitary and he's on his own, and he said he's got this bed in there, he's got this, there's a toilet, there's a basin, and then there's this old kind of wardrobe. And... He lies on his bed and he sees this graffiti on the wall that says, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. He rummages through the cupboard. It had all like paper goods in there and trash. Puts his hand on a book. Turns out it's a Bible. Starts reading it. This is the missionary God who turned up in Ur, who also turned up in his cell. And this is the God who can change lives, just like he changed Abraham's life. And he becomes a Christian and parents keep praying for him. Then when he finally is released from prison, his parents drive him back home and he gets to his home and he sees um, a yellow ribbon tied at the front of the tree. Now, good many of you know that song. I know younger, younger may not, but the song, it was actually from a Civil War, I guess, original story. And it was about someone who'd been in prison and had told his sweetheart, actually it was handkerchiefs, I guess, in the original story, but the song is about the yellow ribbon, that if his sweetheart still wanted him when he got out of prison to tie a yellow ribbon, and in the story, the real story, and in the song, there's like 100 ribbons all out hanging on the tree. So this Christopher drives, goes to the driveway, and he sees a yellow ribbon tied around the tree. Not only does he see the yellow ribbon, but he walks up to the front steps, and he marvels, he said he was just overwhelmed with the grace and mercy shown to him and his parents prayer for him in grace and as he gets to the front door he hears the music tie a yellow ribbon playing on a cd player and he goes inside and he finds a hundred yellow ribbons all stuck all over the house with people from his church who were praying for him with prayers and bible verses There once was a sinner named Christopher Yarn, and God had a special plan for him. 
He ended up going to Moody Bible Institute and has ended up being a professor at Moody Bible and then teaching. And I say that story because this is the God of the Old Testament who pursues a sinful people and who can actually change lives. I think of my own life way back when I was in Australia in a teenage and I still remember the day that I became a Christian with all the messy stuff going on in my life. And the Bible is about messy people's lives and God enters into the mess, he pursues his people and he can actually do something with our messy lives. By his grace. So I encourage you, there once was a sinner named Noah and God had a special plan for him. There once was a sinner named Abraham and God had a special plan for him. There once was a sinful people named Israel and God had a plan. There once was a sinner named David and God had a special plan and there once were sinners in this room Carol, and we could go around the table and God is at work in our lives. And we need to remind ourselves of the work of God in our lives and the goodness that other people see. We need to give testimony that it is because of the work of the Lord. David never forgot his own story, where he came from. I, I, written this commentary on Chronicles and um, you see it in his life. At the end of his life, there's several moments, but there's one time at the end of his life and he, um, oh, he just prays to the Lord, who am I, Lord? And who am I and your, who am I and my family that you have brought me this far? And that you've done all these things for us because this is the God of grace and this is the God of mercy who continually pursues us. And as you enter into the story of the New Testament, the grace and mercy is seen most profoundly in the coming of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And I was going to give a couple of minutes, if we have two or three minutes but not for questions, but otherwise we'll just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And we thank you, God, that you did not turn your back on Adam and Eve, but you pursued them and you showed them your grace by even clothing them. We think about Cain and you put a protective mark on him. We thank you for your grace shown to Noah. We thank you, Father, that you turned up the God of all glory in that place of Ur, of the stench of idolatry would have been coming up to your throne. And yet you entered into Ur and you made promises to Abraham and you have been faithful to fulfill your promises. We thank you that you chose Israel, a people, a stubborn and stiff-necked people who rebelled against you repeatedly and yet you were faithful to them and you sent prophet upon prophet upon prophet. We thank you, Father, that you made promises to David that far outlived his lifetime. And even when he committed adultery and murder, Father, that you were gracious to him. And we thank you 
that you have promised through the prophet Jeremiah that you would enter into a new covenant with your people and that you promised to forgive us. And we thank you, Jesus, that you inaugurated the new covenant and that you have you are faithful to us when we are unfaithful. We thank you, Jesus, that you have taken the curse of the covenant upon yourself in our place. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the perfect Lamb of God. Your perfect obedience stands in place of mine. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have sent your spirit to dwell within us, to cause us to be more like you each day. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Father, for each person here in this room as they've been going through this story of the Old Testament and then into the New. Lord, I pray that you would cause it to be a spillover of blessing to others. Even as Abraham was just, others who kind of came around him and were blessed by him. Lord, would you cause your word to be a blessing in these people's lives here and in their families one person at a time? We ask, Lord, that you would bless families, any prodigals that need you. Lord, we thank you that you turn up in prison cells on a wall with graffiti because you are the God of Genesis 1, that nothing is too difficult for you. And so, Lord, I want to just pray for your blessing upon these people. Uh, bless the study of the scriptures and use it to be a blessing to this wider community in Charlotte, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me in thanking Dr. Kaminsky? So um, just while we have you, just for, for, for another minute. So um, it was just over a year ago that we, we had dreamed about New City Academy and this space where we could equip people to be disciple makers. And just over a year ago, we decided this was going to be the year. And I'm looking for Tam there, Tammy. And so, Tammy, thank you so much for taking this on and for all your hard work and your leadership. And we're just so grateful for your team as well. And we found Casket Empty mm -hmm. probably around May or June. Um, and <laughs> a little later. Um, later. <laughs> and just couldn't have imagined that, that you would be standing here with yeah. us and teaching our final lesson. Uh, 21 weeks, can you believe it, that we've been together journeying through this story. And so we just want to say thank you mm -hmm. for leading us and um, telling us the true story tonight mm -hmm. about the true covenant keeping God. And we, um, I thought we could just bless Carol and just pray for her. She's um, you know, just had 30 plus years of teaching at yeah. Combo and continuing and um, expanding her teaching and her writing. And tell us again what the name of the commentary is that for Chronicles. Yes, yeah, so the Chronicles commentary is in the Story of God series, uh, Zondervan's Story of God. Uh, it's out in October. But I have written it as story, as narrative. It's all theology but narrative and lots of application. It's Chronicles is beautiful. It's beautiful material. One, one quick why. The verb to seek the face of God occurs more often in Chronicles than in any other book in the Old Testament. It's the, the one hallmark of leadership, the highest, seeking the face of God. So it's, it's a beautiful, rich material, actually. Awesome. Okay. Once you get through the genealogies. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll look forward to yeah. it. Um, so we're, we are going to take a little class trip.
uh, to the worship center. So we'll line up single file. Um, hopefully we won't lose anybody between here and there, but we'd love to get a picture to just mark um, this moment and, and finishing the first, um, first year of Academy. And really just to say the vision again, to see hundreds, maybe thousands of people uh, engage with Academy and become disciple makers in their world. Um, so if you would just stand on your feet and if you feel comfortable just extending your hands, we'd love to just bless Carol um, as, she, uh, as she goes. Lord, thank you for Carol. Thank you for the incredible gift that she has, that she shared with us tonight and generosity. Thank you for her story and so generously sharing that with us tonight. And thank you for her faithfulness in studying your word. And I pray that you would give her continued insights into your word, that your spirit would speak to her, and that words would flow from her pen as she writes your story, the true story, uh, for people to engage with. And so I pray for this work to come on Chronicles and, and many other projects that you would use, Carol, um, to build up your church and equip your people for ministry. And thank you for the ways that you have used her in our lives to do just that. So we bless her tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Bless you, friend.